So um, we're going to jump into scripture right now. So if you guys don't have Bibles, um, we have some ushers that would love to get you guys Bibles. Why don't you raise your hand and we will uh, get you Bibles. A little bit of encouragement to you guys as well. If you guys don't uh, typically bring a Bible to church, my strong recommendation, encouragement would be for you to bring a Bible. Um, You know, in the world where we oftentimes have Bibles on our laptops and our iPhones and whatnot, that's, that's wonderful. I think sometimes what happens is we come out of use of using an actual codex. So my strong um, encouragement to you would be to, if you don't have a Bible, keep this as our gift to you. Or go out and buy a Bible. You know, there's this place called Amazon. You can usually buy good ones. Or there's this other really great place. It's called our Lost and Found. You might need to, like, erase someone's name out of there, but that, that's good. Um, but we have some good ones. Leather-bound, it's great. Some bonded leather. But... Um, uh, you know, ha- have a Bible, invest in a Bible, invest in a good Bible. It might cost you, you know, between $20 to 60 or 80 or whatever, depending upon what route you go. But honestly, it will be the best investment you will ever make in your life. Uh, I mean, I would say that in conjunction with reading as well. So, because you can have a Bible and not ever read it, and that's not a good investment. So, so but the point is, uh, bring a Bible. We're going to be getting into scripture. There's a lot of passages that we're going to be covering here this morning. Um, we are going to uh, continue the series that we started several weeks ago um, called Renovation of the Heart. The big, be, big idea behind it is really asking the question, what does it look like to be remade as followers or disciples of Jesus? We are looking at practices that are within Scripture that followers of Jesus have practiced, that Jesus himself had done. Things like praying, things like being a part of a, a community, a body. Um, today we're going to be looking at the subject of fasting. And again, for many of us, the subject of fasting is completely foreign to us. Um, in some ways, maybe when we hear the subject matter of fasting, we might think it's really odd because, again, it just shows you how far removed uh, we have become as a westernized church, maybe evangelical westernized type of church, from certain practices that were basically innate. They were part of Jewish history before Jesus. They were part of Jesus' life. They were part of the early church's history. Um, but maybe for the past 50 to 100 whatever years, uh, they've fallen out of practice for us as followers of Jesus. And again, we'll try to understand a little bit about why that is the case in just a moment. But um, with that being said, one of the things I want to say before we jump in, one of the things that we try to encourage you guys to really consider for us, and I mention this oftentimes as a church gathering, is that there are a handful of things that define us, that we look at, that are values, that we identify as a church community. And one of the things that I've been thinking about with regard to this and how this all plays into us as a church is that when we gather on a Sunday morning, this is, think of this as like coming to the gymnasium, um, spiritual gymnasium, where we fine-tune, we work out, we are part of this community. There's four main values that we typically like to think of that we view as really important and central to who we are as a church. It's worship, um, training, uh, community, but then also mission. These four areas that we look at are so significant. So for example, worship, what happens when we come and we sing, we lift up our hands, we raise our voices, we engage with God through song uh, and or generosity and giving the way we describe, um, that when we do that, what we're doing is we're renovating our hearts. We're weaning our hearts off of the things that oftentimes our hearts go after. That's what worship does. Secondly, when we train, like what we do here as a church, we're Bible-teaching church. So even though there may be occasions where we get into sort of um, topical-type series, like this is kind of more of a topical series, but it's still Bible-teaching. We're still digging into Scripture and asking bigger questions as to how certain themes are played out and laid out within Scripture. Uh, But again, the bigger idea behind why we train 
is because at the end of the day, we're renovating our minds or renewing our minds to think differently. Uh, you and I are constantly being fed a narrative and a culture at large in which we live in. We're believing lies that the culture tells us about ourselves, about others, about who we are before God. And what the gospel does is it completely renews our minds into the story of the, into the, story of the Bible. So again, it's, it's, you might think of it's just being a sermon. Sure, if, if that's how you want to view it. It's just like Jesus might just be just a carpenter's son. But maybe there's more to it than just that. Maybe there's the possibility of renewal of your mindset, uh, uh, a way to contradict and to attack and to remove some of those faulty, toxic narratives that you and I believe. And so my invitation for you is to think about it in that uh, latter type of a light. So number one, worship. Number two, training community. Thirdly, community reminds us that you and I have a place to belong. Again, each one of these kind of go against and uh, seek to replace some of the issues that we deal with as a, uh, within our hearts as a, as a human being. So a lot of times we're asking the question, who are we and where do we belong? Well, as we gather as a church family, we're reminded that we actually belong to a family. We belong to a community, one that Jesus is deeply involved in, reshaping our minds and our hearts. And then fourthly and finally, uh, mission is, again, another one of the values that we are all about. And what mission reminds us is that you and I, when we leave this place, we're not just wandering aimlessly in this world trying to make sense of who we are and where our place is. We have a mission. We are commissioned by Jesus to go be the body of Christ, to go live out the gospel in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces. Uh, There's an intentionality that you and I can imbibe and live according to that will actually transform maybe not only your life and your experience in life, but also the lives of other people that you interact with. So again, this kind of plays in the bigger picture of we're asking the bigger question of what does it look like to actually become these disciples that are shaped by Jesus? What do those practices look like? And that's what we've been trying to unpack. So with that being said, I want to read the passage that we're going to be looking at here today. Again, looking at the subject of fasting. Uh, With that, why don't you guys open your Bibles to three distinct areas. They're all pretty easy to find. The first one is page three of the Bible. All right, Genesis chapter 3 is the first spot that we're going to be looking at. So Genesis 3, put your finger there. Next, go to the New Testament, the very first uh, book in the New Testament. It's the book of Matthew. Turn to chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. We'll look at those and then skip forward two chapters to your right to Matthew chapter 6. So those are three main passages that we'll be looking at. So in order to read scripture and to just kind of have our hearts in the right posture of reverence to God and to what he wants to speak to us, how about we all stand and then I'll read and then I'll pray and then we'll begin to take a look at uh, this larger subject of fasting, how it plays in our lives. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. We'll look at verse 1, verse 4, verse 6. Now the serpent said to the woman, did God really say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Verse 4, but the serpent said to the woman, you shall not die. Verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, a delight to the eyes, and was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate it, and then also gave some to her husband, who was also with her, and he ate. Uh, Jump to Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And then the tempter then came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to be loaves of bread. 
And he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Skip forward to Matthew chapter 6, verses 16 through 18. When you fast, don't look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces and they're washing uh, and they're fasting that may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who's in secret. And your Father who sees you in secret will reward you. God, we ask you right now that you would just open our hearts as this is your word. God, we pray that we just pause and reflect upon this and consider it and reshape and reorient our hearts, our minds. God, that you would rescript the story in our minds so that it aligns with the gospel and disaligns from every other toxic narrative that we're constantly feeding off of in this culture and society at large. So renew our thinking today. Renew our hearts today. Reorient our position in the community we belong to, and then God ultimately send us out of here, empowered by the Holy Spirit to be the missionaries you've called us to live forth as lights and salt in this world. So commit this time in your hands, and we pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. We all said, amen. Why don't you guys all grab a seat? I've lived in San Luis Obispo almost 26 years. One of the things I've noticed, especially over the past maybe five, maybe 10 years, is that San Luis Obispo has kind of become this, this uh, destination spot for, for foodies, right? Um, the quality of restaurant has like exponentially like skyrocketed, not just, not just only in San Luis Obispo, but in the Central Coast and on the Central Coast uh, in general. Like uh, San Luis is, is all about really, really good food institutions really, really great coffee that's roasted fresh and, you know, single origin, fair trade, amazing coffee. And we've got it, like, it seems like they're popping up everywhere, like craft beer places. So everything in our culture, especially on the Central Coast, we kind of pride ourselves in the quality of lifestyle that we have. And the fact of the matter is, it's, it's, our quality is really high. We have the best of the best and, uh, and I'm not just saying that because I'm, I'm proud of, of where I live, but I am saying that because I'm proud of where I live. But the fact of the matter is, is there is so much stuff in our culture at large that tends to position itself to really feed, no pun intended, though there is a pun intended, to feed every single appetite and desire that you and I have. Um, and yet the reality is that there seems to be a consistency of um, messages that are conflicting. So I'll, I'll give you an example of this. And if you were to kind of visit what I like to think of as the houses of worship of modern pop culture, a.k.a. the uh, grocery um, magazine rack, think of those as houses of worship. They put forth images that we're to look at, be in awe of. Um, they send uh, massive amounts of conflicting uh, messages to us. So on the one hand, uh, we are constantly inspired and directed to say, you can look really good. So whether it be Adam Levine without a shirt on or at the cover of Cosmo, um, that there are ways in which you can look by working out, by doing all sorts of other things, that you can actually have a body 
and a body image that you desire deeply because this is what culture says. If you really want to be accepted, if you really want people to like you, if you really want to be somebody that is cool and hip and likable, this is what you got to do. And at the same time, we're told, you know, eat burgers and eat all sorts of crazy stuff and look good. And, and so at the end of the day, like those of us that live you know, on this planet called planet Earth, we realize you cannot both have fun with burgers and look simultaneously like Adam Levine, <laughs> right? Uh, what, nine-pack abs or whatever it is, if that's a thing. But you cannot do that. It's a conflicting message. And yet we're constantly being fed. Like this is, this is how to live. This is how to engage. This is how to be accepted, how to be acceptable. Um, and yet, at the end of the day, if we listen to that and follow that message, at some point, it will, at a minimum, throw us into a place of confusion. At worst, it will throw us into a place of just total like, ruin of our lives because we feel like I can never obtain that as much as we try to obtain that or look like you know, Adam Levine, a.k.a. Nick Village, or uh, another gal. Like, like, we try hard to look like some of these images, and yet we realize I can't ever do that, so I must always simply relegate or resign myself to just being common or nobody. So what I'm going to suggest is a question, and the question basically is something like this. Is there a practice for us as followers of Jesus? Is there a practice for us as followers of Jesus that will help us to resist wayward desires uh, and to reorient our longing for acceptance and fitting in while turning our hearts to Jesus? That's the big question. Is there a practice that we can do, that we can engage in, that will allow us to disengage with culture at large in order to really retrain, reorient our minds or remind ourselves as to who we are and who we belong to and so on and so forth? This is where I want to focus our attention right now to begin to consider and think about the subject of fasting. Now, again, I realize I'm not going to go around for a show of hands, but if I were to ask how many of you guys regularly fast, this is a regular practice of your life, and or how many times have you ever fasted in your life? Um, again, there's no intent to guilt or shame anybody because that's not ever helpful. But the fact of the matter is that what I would point out is that I think probably the overwhelming majority of us would not even think about doing this as a regular practice. Um, and, and all I want to simply say or make a point out of that is it just shows how disconnected the way we tend to think about certain ideas or concepts and how they were actually a very integral part of the Bible story. And what my hope is today is at least to begin this uh, addressing of the subject matter of fasting. Um, this is going to be a two-part series, by the way. There's way more content that I have to talk about this, and I didn't want to keep you guys in here for three hours. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to do break it down into two parts. Uh, this week, I'm just going to give you a little bit of a skeleton as to what we'll be uh, covering by trying to understand this, how it fits within the larger picture of the Bible. We'll look at the passages that we just looked at, make some sense of those. Um, I'll finish by reading a passage out of the book of Galatians. Next week, we'll look at more of the, the various types of fasting, I'll give you those right now. So if you're taking notes, you can write these down to look forward to these next week. We'll look at at least three different types of fast that the Bible identifies. Number one, uh, I'll just call this a grief fast. In other words, fasting in the context of grief and sorrow, hardship. You find bad news. Something tragic has happened. Your nation has gone through a grievous circumstance. And there is a response by way of fasting. And we'll look at lots of passages next week and unpack that. Second one is a repentance fast. This is in the context of you begin to find something out about yourself or your community that's deeply offensive to the heart of God. And you begin to realize, like, my goodness, like, I have been on the wrong path. 
and I've been acting a wrong way. I've been acting in a way that is totally out of sync with the heart of the one who loves me and who gave himself for me. And I, I need to pull back from eating and to refocus my attention, my mindset, and to uh, rediscover who God is. So that would be a repentance fast. Thirdly, what I would describe as a sacred moment fast, um, and or you can think of it this way, or a definitive moment fast, meaning something definitive is happening in your life, or there is a sacred moment. We see that like with Moses. He goes up to the, uh, uh, confronted with the burning bush. It's a very significant moment. He fasts. Um, these are, we'll look at that and unpack that more next week. But what I want to do is um, I'll give you a couple quick resources and we'll jump in to try to ask the bigger question, what did those scriptures have to do with this larger topic? So here's some two great, um, I think, um, resources on fasting. Number one, John Piper. I read this book several years ago. It was really helpful. Um, if you're familiar with John Piper, he, he leaves no stone unturned. He does a really good job at just kind of tracing this bigger picture storyline of the fasting throughout the Bible called Hunger for God. Second is a guy named Scott McKnight. I have a lot of respect for him. He's an incredible uh, scholar, theologian. He's just got this great book called Fasting. So those are some resources you can check out. Another final, final one I'll throw out is a podcast, actually. It's uh, by the guy named Tim Mackey. He runs the Bible Project. He's got his own unique podcast. It's called Exploring My Strange Bible. It's honestly the best uh, best podcast right now on 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 anywhere, like in any podcast sphere. It's so, so good. Um, but he has a, a, so just find that, locate it, and then do a search for fasting. You should be able to find it pretty easily. So with that, um, let's, let's begin to jump in and try to take a look at these passages and ask this bigger question as to what do they teach us about the subject of fasting. Like I said, I'll land the plane on Galatians chapter 5. That's what we'll look at. So let's jump in and try to understand a little bit about what these passages teach us. Number one is that they teach us that the initial sin of Adam and Eve involved giving into the serpent, so that's pretty obvious, uh, gratifying their desires, indulging in food, and distrusting God. Um, it came as kind of a bit of a surprise to me that actually the first sin involved um, uh, food. Um, obviously, the, the, the sin was not necessarily in, because of food, but it involved this distrust of God, but food was at the center of this thing. Um, food actually played into that initial disobedience and distrust of God. The second thing that we notice about this is that the introductory story of Jesus. Now, again, um, the writers of the New Testament knew exactly what they were doing. So I wanted to stack these side by side for a very specific reason, because I think that's exactly how the New Testament writers wanted us to do that. They wanted us to be reading these, uh, the narrative of Jesus, with the picture of Adam and his wife in the garden um, to think of, them, think of them side by side. Uh, we like to use the phrase of hyperlink, that sometimes the New Testament writers, they'll use phrases or idioms or concepts that, again, if you are in tune, if you're very, very biblically literate, you'd immediately be able to identify and understand, oh, that's a reference to you know, Isaiah. That's a reference to the story of Adam and Eve. And that's exactly what I think the New Testament writers were attempting to do. In fact, Mark gets a little bit more blatant on this. He describes Jesus going into the wilderness and with, with the beasts. And it's this indication that here's Jesus out in the wilderness. He's with the beasts. Just like Adam and Eve were in the garden with, with animals, with the beasts. Um, so we see that Jesus... Uh, he is denying the serpent. Rather than giving in to the serpent, rather than saying yes to the serpent, he is actually confronting the serpent, denying him. Um, and rather than giving in to his desires, his, his lusts, the way the New Testament will explain it in just a moment, we'll look at that, uh, he is actually restraining or controlling his desires. So in other words, 
what we see with regard to Jesus, he's a human being and God, God-man, who is in control of his desires, not controlled by his desires. For us, for the most part, uh, that's humanity. We are, we, are in con- we are controlled by our strong desires. And uh, the invitation of Jesus is to, first of all, discover the power and the forgiveness and the washing and the cleansing that it gives, but then begin to walk in a way, to live in a manner that we become in control of our desires rather than our desires and emotions and so on controlling us. So we see that with Jesus, he controls his desire, and then he fasts from food. Again, the writer of uh, the book of Matthew, Matthew wants us to know very clearly that Jesus is not indulging in the food. He's actually fasting. He's abstaining from it for 40 days. And at the end of that, he's trusting God. And then uh, thirdly, we see that Jesus actually assumed that his disciples would fast. Now we enter into the New Testament story. The book of Matthew chapter 6 is where Jesus begins to teach on fasting. Again, this is a really fascinating story or or, or, um, sermon that Jesus gives right here. Because one of the things that he says to his followers, he says, when you fast. So he's not saying if you fast. Um, He says, when you fast. So his assumption is that his followers at some point will fast. And that when they're to fast, they're to fast in a certain way. So hold on to that thought. We'll come back to that. Fourthly, we see that Jesus actually assumed his disciples will ultimately mess it up. (laughs) Just like the scribes and Pharisees mess it up. And Jesus is pretty clear that the way they messed it up was they fasted in a way that drew attention to themselves, that made much of themselves. And then Jesus recognized that by trusting him, we would learn how to do it differently. Notice Jesus does not throw out the entire practice and says, it was messed up by these guys, they're horrible people, so don't ever do it. He actually redeems it. He says, it's a great habit. They've messed up the habit. I'm going to show you how to do the habit or the practice rightly. That's what Jesus is saying. And he adds to that. He says, and as you do it differently, uh, the Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. This is, this is one of those phrases where I read this over and over and over again. Because it's one of those passages that almost is like a too-good-to-be-true passage. Have you ever read Bible passages like that before? Where you're like, wait, what? You read it over again, you're like, the Father will reward you openly? Like, what does that even mean? Now, again... Uh, we have to read the Bible in its context. So Jesus actually just said a little bit prior to this, he says that the scribes and Pharisees who fast to be seen by others, he says they receive the reward. So there's a connection between how the Pharisees' version or view of their reward and the Father's giving of a reward. So the Pharisees, what does it mean to be a Pharisee, to do fasting in a way that makes you the center of it? to be seen by others, what type of reward comes to you? Well, you get the reward of other people praising you. You're amazing. You're so hyper-spiritual. You're the most incredible human being on the planet. You're so holy. You're so hyper, you know, all these things. And, and we get the praise or the affirmation of others. And I think carrying along that same vein, it's as almost as if Jesus is saying, look, when you orient your life and you fast rightly, meaning you're not making a big to-do out about it, you're not putting yourself at the center of it, you're not somehow trying to position or posture yourself as being over other people by way of dominance, or by a hierarchy. When you do this rightly, guess what? You have the eye of the Father on you. He sees you. He knows you. He loves you. That's, again, think about that. Now, if you see the Father, the opinion of the Father as greater than any other opinion of any other human being on this planet, then that is what 
C.S. Lewis describes as a glory of all glories. We are entering into something that is so sublime and glorious because it's a definition that God sees his children and God delights in his children. Think about that. So again, I don't know what version you have of God. Many of us have these alternate versions of God where we think of God as being an angry, grumpy landlord. He's looking at your life because you're a squatter on his property and he's not happy with you. If your version of God is that, you will never ever enter into this understanding of God having great delight in you as a child. But if your understanding of God is a father who loves his children and actually finds great delight in his children, then what Jesus is saying right here makes a lot of sense. It's a whole, massive, amazing, beautiful description of what he's describing. So Jesus assumed his disciples would mess up, but we would learn to do it differently, and the father who sees in secret will shower his children with this sense of blessing. Now, one thing I want to say before we jump into the latter portion and somewhat land this plane is there is a radical distinction between biblical understanding of fasting and the fasting that is oftentimes common within our world at large. Because, you know, you've been around any type of health, you know, arena for any length of time, you, you've learned that fasting, there's a lot of ma- massive health benefits to it. Intermittent fasting, there's a variety of different ways in which, um, you know, health people have kind of begin to implement this, and they begin to see a lot of benefits to this. Um, that health benefit element, but also a Eastern uh, spiritual type of an approach to fasting, because again, within Hinduism and Buddhism and even uh, Islam, there are approaches to fasting that are part of that as well. But what I would suggest is that there's a distinction between fasting that is oftentimes even within a hyper-spiritual type of a perspective and the biblical pr- perspective and or even just a health perspective. So uh, the, the biblical perspective is not about you and food. It's really important to know this. Because most other forms of fasting are really about you, how you feel, how you look, are you fitting into those genes yet, how, or, or about how you are perceived, and food. Meaning your relationship to food, and you're going to just say, I'm going to abstain from it, we're going to do other forms of fasting, intermittent fasting. So it's really about you and or the food. What I would suggest, biblical fasting is not about that at all. It's not about you and the food, it's actually about God, there's a vertical response, and Denial of the flesh. So there's a bigger category I want to put the context in than just simply food abstinence. And this is how the Bible identifies what fasting is. So again, I just want us to retrain and rethink this approach to fasting. It's about God and about denial of the flesh. So what I want to do now is I'm going to wrap it up by reading some passages out of the book of Galatians that I think are helpful. And I want to finish with a quote by Augustine and we'll wrap this up. So I want to just read bit by bit uh, Galatians chapter 5. We'll start at verse 1, and then we'll just kind of make our way through kind of a large passage of almost the entire chapter of chapter 5, because it's, it's that good. I think it's helpful to just think about what Paul is doing. So Paul starts off by saying, For freedom Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So first of all, I want you to understand something very clearly that Paul wants for you to get, is the very heart of the gospel is not about you being monopolized by God or colonized uh, by some form of tyrant, tyranny or, or um, other ideology. It's actually about Jesus coming into your life and setting you free. It's, it's about freedom, is what Paul says. Um, now, again, when we typically think about freedom, we're Americans, right, for the most part, um, and the way that we think of America 
is freedom is about me being able to do what I, what I want, when I want, how I want. Right? That's kind of how freedom is. So when I'm able to do whatever I want, when I want, how I want, then people will look at me and be like, oh, you're so free. Actually, that's radically distinct of how the Bible describes what freedom is. Paul would actually identify that type of Americanized freedom as actually being an enslavement. Because at the end of the day, being free to do everything I want to do is not freedom, it's enslavement. Because there are things sometimes that my heart tempts me or wants me to do that are in direct conflict, not only to God, but to also other relationships that I value in my life. That's actually enslavement. If I do anything and everything that my heart desires or tells me, that is a new form of tyranny. So Paul would suggest the way that we find freedom is not by doing anything we want, but it's by discovering the life that Christ gives us and then to learn by way of obedience to do what God wants. That's what freedom is. Did you know that? That's what God invites you into, is to rethink entirely your paradigm of what freedom and life and liberty and all that are. So Paul says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. He says, stand firm, therefore, in this, and don't submit again to another yoke of slavery. Verse 13, we're going to jump a bunch of passages. He says, for you are called to freedom, brothers and sisters. He says, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. So Paul's idea of freedom actually is beginning to be shaped even more horizontally. Paul's saying true freedom, what it looks like, is you learning how to serve other people. So what happens if you are always locked into this own world where you only think about yourself and you never even think about other people, um, or you can't in engage in conversations with other people because those other people you might be offended by, you might be upset with, you might have issues with. Paul would actually look at that and say, you're a slave. You cannot be free to serve others. Jesus wants to liberate you and free you so that you can actually go out of your way and give yourself to the benefit of other people. That's what freedom, according to the Bible, looks like. Next slide. Uh, he goes on to say in verse 16, but I say to you, walk in the spirit and do not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. And these are opposed to each other. Keep, and they keep you from doing the things that you want to do. So again, I want you to listen to what Paul does. He introduces two phrases or two ideas that I want to just take a brief moment to think about and consider and digest. Number one, he describes walking by the spirit versus or contrasts that with uh, gratifying the desires of the flesh. So I don't know what you think about when you think of the concept of desire of the flesh. Again, I think this is one of those areas where a lot of times Christians or your youth pastor, you know, they uh, reduce everything down to just sexual or whatever the case is. It, it's, it's, it is that, can be that, but it's far more than that. Um, again, when Paul uses this language, I think he's also probably thinking about the passage in Genesis chapter 1 that we had just read. Again, I'll just read it if you miss it. Just listen to again what it says in Genesis chapter uh, 3 verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, a delight to the eyes, and was to be desired. She saw it was good. It was a delight to her. It sparked joy for her. And it was something to be desired. She longed for it. She lusted for it. What happened was this interaction uh, that basically led her to say no to God and say yes to the serpent, yes to her inner desires. And that became sort of the catalyst for the breakdown of everything, what we would call maybe original sin. 
That's, that's what happened there. And, so, and Paul uses language like that. He says, look, all of us, we have that like, lust of the flesh. And the word flesh in the Greek literally is just the word sarks. It could literally mean your physical body. But really, I think the way that Paul uses the word sarks or lust of the flesh are, are those desires that we have that are oftentimes wayward. They're inordinate. They go out of control. In other words, they begin to control us rather than us control them. This is the important thing that Paul wants us to understand. That there's a battle going on. So if you're a follower of Jesus, meaning at the very core of your being, you're like, I, I know I pray the Jesus prayer. I gave my heart to Jesus. He lives in my, whatever, whatever terminology or language you like to use. But at the same time, there is this conflict that says, but I feel like I keep doing these things that I don't want to do. And I feel guilty and bummed when I come to church. I feel alienated. I, I feel like I'm not where everybody else is at. Um, what is possibly happening or going on is this inner conflict that says your deepest desires are waging a battle against your strongest desires. But what's happening is you are consistently feeding those strong desires and starving your deepest desires. You guys following? How are we all doing? And what Paul is saying is that when we live our lives consistently feeding those strong desires and, and starving our deep desires, that battle doesn't just go away, but our flesh begins to become robust and powerful and overcome our strongest, our deepest desires, what ends up happening is then we find ourselves giving in to temptation over and over and over again. What would happen, another way to think about it this would be this way. We begin to give ourselves over to patterns of sinful proclivities rather than, the way Paul says, walk in the Spirit. Does that make sense? So what I want to suggest to you is fasting is a way of addressing this waywardness. Uh, Paul goes on to say, or let me, uh, sorry, let me go back and I'll wrap it up to this, on this passage. There we go. Uh, Paul says in verse 18, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Next slide. Uh, 18. Next slide. We go on to skip on down to verse 20. He says, the lusts of the flesh, they look like this. And he begins to give this massive list. This is one of the areas in the New Testament where Paul will kind of just go out and give like these lists. So those of you that like lists, uh, make sure you make notes. Here, here's what they are. Idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, tribal. We call it tribalism. And tribalistic type people here, like you, you want to flex your, your tribalistic muscle uh, to demean others. Like that, Paul's just straight up, lust of the flesh. It's not doesn't reflect Jesus. Uh, he goes on to describe, he says, dissensions, divisions, uh, envy, drunkenness, orgies. Yes, like Roman orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And what Paul is saying is that these, if these are habits of our lives, they give testimony, they give indication of the fact that maybe the Holy Spirit has not really come and taken up residence in our lives, or it might be an indicator of the fact that we have become so inclined to certain habits in our lives that we need to be broken out of those habits. And have those bad habits replaced with habits that are in line with the Holy Spirit. God's, God's kingdom. God's heart. Does that make sense? So that's, that's what this is all about. So verse 24, he goes on to say, Those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh and its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. 
So I want us to think about this great quote by Augustine, because again, it takes us a little bit into the background of how significant fasting was in the early church. Now, a couple things by way of just nerding out with you guys. Fasting is not a New Testament thing. Um, again, like I said, next week we'll get into the scriptural passages and I'm, uh, break this out for you guys. But fasting goes all the way back throughout the entire second book of the Bible. And then all the way throughout the entire Old Testament into the life of Jesus. Jesus is fasting. Jesus' disciples are fasting. We even know that early church history, the followers of Jesus, you know, for the first several hundred, if not a couple thousand years, fasted as a regular habit. Places in the church today, still Christians fast. Not just once every blue moon, but actually in some cases twice a week. Now again, I'm not saying any of this to say to make you feel guilty or feel bad or say I got to go figure out how to make this into in my life. We'll talk more about that in two seconds here. But one other final thing I want to say is very clear. Make sure you get this. Um, fasting, nowhere in the Bible is demanded as something that you have to do. It's important to note that. You are not commanded, you know, fast as a follower of Jesus. You're, you're not commanded to do that. But I'm just simply suggesting if it was a practice, Old Testament Followers of Yahweh did. Jesus did. His disciples did. The church for the past, you know, 1,500, 1,800 years have done. Why is it that us modern, perhaps, evangelicals have just lost traction with this habit? And maybe, is it possible that because we've lost traction with this habit, we've become a very fleshly-oriented community that are obsessed with body image and what we eat and how we look and what tribe we belong to, and consumerism, what church is better than another church. And all of these things that kind of play into this narrative that God is saying, it's toxic, and I want to deliver you from it. Listen to what Augustine said. He said, fasting cleanses the soul, raises the mind, subjects one's flesh to the spirit, renders the heart contrite and humble, scatters the clouds of strong sexual desire, quenches the fire of lust, and kindles true light of love for God. So that's what, that's what fasting does. Fasting, again, biblical fasting, that's not focused on food and myself, but focused on God and denial of the flesh, has the potential of awakening something in us that also at the same time helps us in the constant battle and struggle that we fight against our flesh. So with that being said, I want to finish with some just practical thoughts to consider. So how can we make this into more of a practical thing? We'll look more again at this next week. Number one, I would just say, first of all, obviously, just, you know, I don't want to get sued. Um, check with your doctor first, all right? So if you've got you know, diabetes, don't, don't, don't do this. Don't say, well, Pastor Brian, so the fast, I'm on a 40-day fast, and... Things aren't going well for me physically right now. Um, don't do that. So check with your doctor if, that's, if you've got questions on this. Secondly, um, start somewhere. You know, for, for many of us, it's just starting somewhere. Um, Christians, many Christians even throughout this world, they, I think, fast on like Tuesdays and Fridays, if I'm not mistaken. It's just kind of a, a, a common habit. So twice a week. Again, don't, don't look at that overwhelming and be like, oh my gosh, I can barely even like keep my head on straight. Like the thought, now I've got to think about it. No, no, don't, don't, don't do it then. That's, it's not a habit that you should pick up right now. Or if the thought of fasting um, actually raises uh, a lot of worries about uh, past circumstances in your life that where maybe you had an eating disorder and, and fasting and regurgitating your food was something that 
it was a practice of yours that actually was a bad practice that took you down dark pathways. The thought of actually fasting might be like, ah, oh, man, that brings up all these old emotions. I would suggest don't, don't do it then. Maybe the most important thing for you to do now is focus on learning how to eat in a bright way. And in the meantime, find someone who's older than you, mature than you, who loves Jesus, who's been following Jesus much longer than you, and begin to bring that eating disorder up to them, begin to pray with them, begin to think about the image uh, or the role that body image plays into all this and begin to find help in healing for your heart as Jesus reorients you in terms of who your identity is in Jesus. But uh, on a practical note, I would just say start somewhere. Uh, a simple way to start would be to just maybe just uh, uh, fast with from one meal, to pull away from maybe one meal uh, once a week. And just during that time, again, this is not about you, it's not about the food, it's about God, and it's about abstinence of the flesh. And in that time, use that time to pray and to think about God and to pray to God for things that are necessary within your life and to ask God to give you a more sharpened hunger for him. Um, and then as you are learning how to do that well, then you can continue to engage this practice in a little bit more of a robust manner. I know for me personally, this has been one of those areas in my life that's been extremely helpful for me over the years. I've, it's been something many, many years ago as a young Christian I, I, I did, and I took, I don't know, 20 years off. And then probably the past, like, three years, two years, it's become something of more of a habit that I've tried to, like, practice in my life. Um, throughout the week to just disengage from food and during those times I communicate to my wife typically and just say I'm going to be fasting today and throughout the day she's aware of that and again if I'm going out to eat with somebody I'm not going to be like hey what's up I'm not fasting so you know God bless you as you uh, enter into gluttony right now and I'll just watch you like that's that's not again that's that's back up on back upon me that's like making much of myself and I've just completely annihilated the very purpose of my fast. But I would say start somewhere and begin to work your way upward and begin to research it, think about it. And if this is something you've never thought about before, it's never come on your radar, my encouragement for you would be to just uh, delve into some of the resources that are made available and begin to think about it and pray about it and ask how this could become something that might help you in your battle against the flesh and your orientation of your heart towards the spirit as we follow Jesus. So at the end of the day, I would just simply say this as I summarize and finish up, that for many of you, um, don't even be thinking about fasting. There's big issues for your life that you gotta focus on. It's just Jesus. Jesus is the main thing. And like I've been saying all along throughout this entire series, the big idea is not about the practices. The practices are the means to the big idea. The big idea is Jesus. We want to be like Jesus. The practices are not the means, or not the end. It's not what we're looking at. It's not how we measure success. At the end of the day, we want to be like Jesus. We want to be people that know what it means to worship, to be in community, to be trained, and to then ultimately be on mission, to live as people following Jesus here in the Central Coast as an alternate family to this place that we call home. So how about we all stand? I'm going to pray over us. We'll have the worship team come on up. We'll respond uh, so I don't know where you're at this morning, what types of circumstances have brought you here today. My hope would be that as we respond, that God would show you where those areas are at, that as we partake of the communion, the bread and the cup, as we lift our voices, our prayers to God, as we sing to God, that our response would be one that is rightly reflective of his revelation uh, to us. So I want to pray for us, and my invitation to you would be to just engage with God, to worship him. 
Um, there's some rugs in the front. If you just want to pull away from the area where you're sitting, you want to just get you know, on your knees before God, sit before God, whatever. Uh, it's space to just say, I, I need to do business with him. There's definitely areas in my life that God's calling you to deal with because he loves you. That's who he is. He loves us. Enter into that love. God, thank you for that love. And even right now, we want to respond by way of song and prayer and remembrance of your death by eating the bread and drinking the cup.